1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymnaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Uh, so we're moving forward in our series uh, through 1 Timothy. We're looking at the last few verses of chapter 1 today. So if you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and pull that out. Uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Uh, the topic of this is basically a battle for our faith, a battle for our faith. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Um, Father, I, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for your word. And I ask God that you would, um, man, that you would just stir our hearts and our affections uh, for King Jesus. Jesus, would you just be big uh, to us uh, through this passage? Help us to see you more clearly, to love you um, more passionately, and uh, just be honored uh, in our time and through our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so I actually think that uh, this this sermon about the battle of our faith it's a it's timely that it, it's it's coming that we're at a text like this on uh, what's known as Reformation Sunday, right? Uh, how many of you knew it was Reformation Sunday? It's the last Sunday of October. Uh, it's been acknowledged by churches and denominations throughout history to pay homage uh, to the significance of uh, what's known as the Protestant Reformation. When a few brave men and women led by the Spirit and, by, and driven by biblical convictions engaged in a battle uh, for our faith. They confronted the moral and theological corruptions that were spreading uh, throughout the church, going rampant at that time. And uh, basically, the little history, what happened was that by the 16th century, the church had morphed into this, this just conglomerate institution that had not only strayed from the teachings of the Bible and the centrality of the good news of Jesus as the way into God's kingdom, but they were teaching that the only way into God's kingdom was through their own man-made systems that they sort of had set up, all right? So they taught the unbiblical doctrine of uh, superrogation, super, sorry, super Irrigation. There you go. Uh, it's a little, bit, a little bit of mouthful. So super irrigation, by the way, it's not a biblical doctrine, right? That's when they, they taught that when Jesus died on the cross, his payment uh, only gets applied to like a certain amount. And then everything else that he overpaid in excess gets placed in sort of like this magical, mysterious treasury of merit, uh, which uh, they taught was controlled by them by the church. And for the right price, if you paid enough money, they would transfer some of those extra merits to you so that you could purchase some extra, G extra grace from the Jesus blood bank, right? That's kind of how it worked. Uh, that would ensure that you and your family had enough merit to save you from hell and suffering and your family from purgatory, which is also unbiblical. Uh, and if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough, the only Bibles uh, that they had available were in a language that only church officials could read and understand. And so that kept the people in power staying in power. And those are just a few of the, some of the jacked up things that were going on uh, in the church around that time. Now, God obviously, God obviously hates all of that. 
He hates all of that. And Jesus promised that he would build his church and not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. And so what happened is by the end of the 15th century, a group of pastors and scholars, they start seeing how things are going. They start seeing how things are being run. And they're like, hey, this doesn't line up with scripture. I don't see this in the Bible. And they would push for reform. That's where we get the word reformation from. They would push for change to bring things back to the gospel. The, the reformation kind of has this uh, uh, reputation for being uh, against uh, what was going, things that were going on. But really, we should see the reformation as being for the gospel as it's always been, right? Uh, so they pushed for reform and change to bring things back to the gospel. And one of those reformers that rose up uh, was a former lawyer turned monk named Martin Luther. Uh, he's studying the book of Romans one day, Romans chapter one, and the spirit of God just awakens him, awakens him to the church's corruption. And on October 31st, 1517, he famously hammers his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door in Germany to expose the wicked corruption of the indulgence system. We could say he literally nailed it, right? Uh, hence my shirt right here, right? Nailed it. Uh, that's Martin Luther. So uh, it's like the one day a year that I wear this shirt. Uh, but from there, what ended up happening is Luther and other pastors like uh, Ulrich Zwingli and Jean Calvin or Jean Calvin in Switzerland, John Knox in Scotland, Thomas Cranmer and William Tyndale in England, Bartholomew Alfonso in Italy, and a whole bunch of other guys, they go on to preach the gospel to the common man and translate the Bible in the common tongue so that everybody could know the gospel so that everybody can have access to the true gospel that saves. That you don't have to earn your salvation. You don't have to buy your salvation. Jesus paid it all, just like we sing. And all the glory and salvation goes to God and Jesus Christ. It was a turn to the gospel of what we call justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. It was the same gospel taught by the early church, taught by Jesus and the apostles, by Paul. It says that you really have three options in this life. You either have three options. You either recognize that, man, I am unrighteous, that you are unrighteous, you're broken, depraved, you blew it, you failed, you're a sinner without hope, total despair, and, and just down on yourself, right? That's only half of the gospel, right? And so you're just bombed out all the time. The other option that you have is what we might call self-righteousness, right? That's where you see yourself as good, as moral, as proud, as better than anyone else, which is, which pride, by the way, is a sin. And so, but the self-righteous people don't see their own sin. And so they thought they were perfect, but in reality, they were not. That was Paul, by the way, the author of First Timothy. That was Paul before he met Jesus. The third option, the one that the Bible teaches where the good news is, is what we call gift righteousness. And in gift righteousness, we say, I'm unrighteous, but Jesus, he's righteous. We say, I'm a sinner, but Jesus, he's my savior. I'm dead in my sin, but Jesus makes me alive. He makes me new. And he gives me his righteousness as a gift of grace. It's gift righteousness. And so therefore, because of that gift righteousness, I am now righteous in the sight of God. That's where we get the term righteousness, right? I'm righteous before the sight of God, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done. I'm right with God because of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And so when you die and you stand before God and have to give an answer for your life. The answer is Jesus. I'm with that guy. 
That's the answer. I'm with that guy. He's covered my sin. He's made me new. He's changed my heart. I'm in him. That's why the Bible describes Christians as those who are, as those who are, <coughs> excuse me, in Christ. In Christ. We're found in him. We're alive in him. We trust in him. We love him. We follow him. We listen to him. We abide in him. We worship him. We're all about him. Amen? And so the challenge of every church or in every generation is to push back against the false gospels of the day and to contend for the gospel that the reformers did, the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And this battle of the faith is something that the apostle Paul, he was keen about in his day. And it is with that battle in mind, with that fight in mind, that he gives Timothy one final charge in this chapter to engage in the battle of the faith, to wage the good warfare for the sake of the gospel. The big idea of of this text is this, is that because the gospel is worth defending and celebrating, we are to fight the good battle of faith. Because the gospel is worth defending and worth celebrating, we're to fight the good battle of the faith. Uh, I've got three points for you. Uh, it's a part acronym, R-E-F, short for Reformation. I thought that was cute. So point number one, R, remember your charging calling. Remember your charging calling. Where do we see this? Look at verse 18 with me. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Notice he addresses Timothy as my child, right? We're reminded of Paul's sort of familial relationship that he's got with his son in the faith, Timothy, and the church that he pastors. He's not giving this charge as an authoritarian commander, right? As a guy on a power trip. No, but he's giving this charge as a loving father in the faith. He says, this charge, I entrust you. What is this charge? He's picking up from his previous point that he made in verses 3 through 11. He's saying, Timothy, look, you've been trusted with the good news that brings salvation in Christ Jesus to those who desperately need it. And I'm trusting you to carry this out. I'm trusting you to fight for the gospel in your own life and in your own church. Wage a good warfare, Paul says. And this charge is a charge for every Christian in every generation, not just Paul and, or Timothy in his generation. Because I think that there is in each of us, even as followers of Jesus, there's a type of sort of drifting that can take place if we're not careful if we're not attentive to what's going on in our own hearts. I think if you peek in on God's people from in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, you'll, you'll see that God's people have the tendency time and time and time again to drift away from the truth of the word and away from the lordship of Christ. We have the same tendencies as saved yet sinful men and women today. You check in at any point in church history, you see that we have a tendency over a period of time to grow less and less enamored with the gospel, to grow less and less serious about holiness. We allow ideas into our minds that, that, that shape and that form us in a way that doesn't, that doesn't motivate us toward God and that pulls us away from him. I mean, like most of us, we're not struggling with like some overtly heinous things, right? And some of us are. 
And man, just so you know, there is the welcome mat is out. The light is on for you. Like you are welcome. This is a safe place to deal with just the messiest, crappiest junk of life. But most of us aren't struggling with some overtly heinous thing. It's covert things. Maybe morally neutral things that, that sort of creep in and, and then morph into something uh, where it becomes uncontrollable, begins to own your heart. It's a good show or, or a fun game that suddenly dominates your time and attention and removes you from opportunities to, to show up to the people around you. It's a good drink or a cigar to the glory of God that turns it into an unhealthy dependence or an addiction or habit. It's a friendly relationship that turns into flirting or fantasizing. It's a laziness that turns to apathy and keeps you from God's word and and from prayer. It's a desire to to be religious, really religious, or to be really happy, or to be really comfortable, um, and that turns into a distortion of the gospel when you start treating God as, as, as a genie that grants wishes rather than a Lord you submit to and follow. And look, none of this is new, right? Search the scriptures, look throughout church history, none of this is brand new. We've, we've written songs about this, right? We sang a song last week, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Come thou fount of every blessing, that song we sang last week. See, but God has given us an anchor in his word. He's given us an anchor to the gospel in his word, and through Paul's charge to Timothy, he charges us to fight for it. Look what else he says in verse 18. He says that he's entrusting this charge in accordance with the prophecies made about you, speaking to Timothy, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, when he says the prophecies previously made about you, that's a strange reference, right? So let's talk about that. Uh, Later on in the book of 1 Timothy, and actually 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he says this to Timothy. He says, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What he's talking about there is the same thing that he's talking about in chapter 1, verse 18. When Timothy was ordained as a pastor uh, in ministry over the church in Ephesus, there was preaching at that event when he was ordained. They had a service. Certain things were said. And in the days of the apostles, some, some men and women had the gift of divine prophecy, and they spoke words over Timothy in his career that he would take care of the problems of the church in Ephesus. Probably not diff- much different from the prophecies that God gave to the apostle Paul uh, in the book of Acts when he says, you're going to endure a lot of suffering, but I'm going to be with you. My presence is going to be with you and empower you in your ministry. We see this all throughout this letter and in 2 Timothy that Timothy sometimes doubted whether he would be able to keep the church faithful. Paul mentions these promises right here, these prophecies to sort of pump up Timothy's confidence, to pump up his confidence and get him refocused on the mission at hand. He says, don't neglect the gift that you have. He says, engage in the good warfare. Do this, do this charge that I entrust you in accordance with the prophecies made about you. Now, We've learned a lot about how this applies to Timothy, but how does this apply to the everyday Christian, to us today in the 21st century? How is it that we remember 
our charge and calling? How is it that you remember your charge and calling? The way that Christians today can remember their calling is by remembering the significance of your baptism. The Bible says that multiple times to us in our, throughout the New Testament. This is a concept articulated best by our Reformed tradition where we talk about improving your baptism. In Colossians 2 and in Romans 6, we're reminded about the significance of baptism. And if you've ever been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know that the significance of that baptism is that you were buried. Your old self was buried. You go under the water to be buried with Christ. Your old self is buried with Christ, and you rise from the water uh, as, a, as a symbol of Jesus' resurrection applied to you. You rise so that your new self has risen in him. That in the same way that Jesus was raised up from the dead, we should now walk in newness of life. We're dead to sin, but alive in Christ. That's what baptism shows us. That's what it means. It's not, it's not a meaningless ritual. There's significance there. It's saying, I am dead to my old self, and I'm alive in Christ now. And Paul says, look, remember your charge, remember your calling. If you've been baptized into the faith, Remember the significance of your baptism. Remember that you're dead to your old self, that you're alive to walk in newness of life. If you haven't been baptized in the faith, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Like this, this is one of the ways that you, you obey Jesus is that as a follower, you identify with him by virtue of your baptism. And your baptism does, isn't just meaningful for the time that you went under the water uh, and came back up. Your baptism is significant for your everyday walking in grace, as Colossians 2 and Romans 6 tells us. Paul says to Timothy, look, you've got a good fight worth fighting, so remember your charge and your calling. Now, how else do we do that? Point number two, this is the E, engage your faith and conscience. Engage your faith and conscience. In verse 18, in the beginning of verse 19, he says this. He says, uh, uh, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith, or holding faith and a good conscience. Now, when Paul talks about holding faith and a good conscience, he's, he's contrasting he's contrasting with the false teachers he described in verse 5 that we talked about a few weeks ago. Those false teachers who abandoned what he called a good conscience and a sincere faith. You remember that? Now, when Paul, uh, now when the faith that he's talking about here is, is what we might call the faith, the Christian faith. Elsewhere in the letter, he refers to this faith as the faith. This includes the doctrines that are essential to the Christian faith because they're, and they're, they're essential to the Christian faith because they're essential to the gospel. Doctrines like the reality of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, that Jesus is both man and God, the need for atonement for our sin, the sufficiency of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The effectiveness of faith alone for justification, the inerrancy of Scripture. You see, by saying this, Paul is reminding us that sound doctrine, it matters. Sound doctrine matters. It's not something to be trifled with. Doctrine is, should not be viewed at as boring or dull. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the great church father from the first few centuries, said that theology is taught by God, teaches God, and leads unto God. What he's saying is that theology or sound doctrine matters because it's all about God. 
we should care about it, not because we need to get a good grade on a, on a test, but because we know about God and the gospel, and it shapes the way that we think and live and love others. Studying God doesn't have to be like studying a car manual, right? Uh, I accidentally blew a bunch of fuses in my car because I was like trying to jump it, uh, and I accidentally reversed the polarities. Uh, and I know Devin, I know, uh, but you, but like all these fuses just just blew, and so like I had to like take it apart, but I had to like look at the uh, manual and like read all these things to find out where this fuse was and that was and how to take out like this other one. And and uh, man, like it's it's boring. Right? That day dragged on. Studying God doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like studying a car manual. It can be like studying the changing hues of a beautiful sunset. It can be like studying the careful design of the veins on the underside of a fresh leaf as it falls to the ground. It can be like the way a husband studies his wife that he loves. Nobody hates on him for knowing what she likes and what she, she dislikes, what she worries about and what she longs for. No one criticizes him for wanting to hear her voice, to have her speak to him. Doctrine doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be dull or dry. And if you think about it, the only alternative that we have to sound doctrine is ignorance about God, fake news about God. You're either building your life and faith on the truth of who Jesus is, or you're basing it on your own imagination and your own misunderstandings. We all have doctrines that we believe about God and ourselves and the world that we live in. The real question is whether those doctrines are true and shaped by the word or whether they're false and come from somewhere else. You see, throughout human history, God's people have never just, they've never just drifted into the true faith. They've had to fight for it. They've had to fight for it. We see that as, as early as like in the New Testament, when Moses came down from the mountain and the citizens of Israel were worshiping golden idols. He's like, what are you guys doing? He had to confront them. And then Joshua, he had to confront them because they were serving, they were choosing between serving God and serving uh, other gods. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> How's that even a choice? Ezekiel had to oppose false prophets who spread lies about God and his covenants. In the New Testament, Jesus contradicts the false doctrine of the Pharisees over and over and over. Paul's epistles are filled with concern about sound doctrine. It's like in the very epistle that we're reading this afternoon, 1 Timothy. In Jude, Jude urges his readers to contend for the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. In the early centuries of the New Testament church, we had to defend the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, the doctrine of God's grace at the Council of Ephesus. At Chalcedon and Constantinople, the nature of Jesus as God was defended. Throughout the Middle Ages, the way of salvation by faith alone was under attack. And so God reformed the church by raising up Luther and Calvin and Knox and Spurgeon, all these guys we already mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, uh, to, to usher in the Protestant Reformation. We got the five solas of the Reformation because of that. Five doctrines that were lost, that were now reclaimed at the Protestant Reformation. And because it's Reformation Sunday, I want to go through these really quick. Here are the five solas of the Reformation. You got sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. Tells that the Bible alone is the standard for our faith and practice. Not some church tradition, not some magistrate, not some, some national church, but the Bible alone. Solus Christus, that's Latin for Christ alone. It's a reminder that Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. 
It's not Christ plus something else. It's not Christ uh, and uh, some denomination. It's Christ alone. Sola fide is Latin for faith alone. We're saved by faith alone, not by works. It's not that our faith is alone. Good works flow from that faith. But faith is the sole instrument of being justified before God, and that matters. Sola gratia, Latin for grace alone. That grace is the sole power of God for salvation. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it. It's just given to you. And soli deo gloria, Latin for glory to God alone. All of these, that all of these previous solas point to the greater glory of God, who alone is worthy of our worship and praise. And look, in the last hundred years even, that fight has continued with J. Gresham Macon and others against modernity's teaching that faith uh, isn't a, a supernatural being born again experience. It's, it's just subjective. It's just this hu- particular human's experience that can be explained away by psychology and chemistry and biology. Later on, you have the fight between evangelicalism and liberalism where Billy Graham and Carl Henry and others fought for the exclusivity of the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ. Look, that battle continues on to this day, to this day against the false gospels of our day. We went through some of those false gospels a few weeks ago, uh, four of them. We, we, we made them start with the letter P. We got the piety gospel, the self-righteous religious gospel, the prosperity gospel, the personal self-help gospel, and especially in the last uh, decade, the political gospel. You see, the point of this brisk walk through church history that we just did is to point out that God's people we're never not in danger of falling into error. Our history, our Christian history, proves the need for Paul's charge to Timothy. And until Christ returns, the church will always be embattled against false doctrine. It's not just, our battle's not just with secularism out there. It's also, and maybe even more primarily so, against the false gospels in our midst that we need to be awakened to. It's not just a matter of holding the faith, though. Paul says we must also hold to a good conscience, engage a good conscience. He says right there in in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. That tells us that it's not enough to just believe the gospel intellectually. You need to preach it to yourself, to your own heart, so that your conscience guides you in the ways of Jesus, to walk in the ways of Jesus. Our faith and our conscience, it goes together. It's, it's, it's belief and behavior. It's, it's, it's faith and ethics. Paul's saying, look, don't sin against your conscience. Don't violate what you believe to be true about God and the gospel. Let your deeds match your words. Seneca, one of the great Greek philosophers who was alive during Paul's day, was criticized for failing to live up to the standards that he himself was teaching to others. He even admitted that. He got called out on it. And he's like, you know, you're right. I can't do it. My, 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 my deeds, my walk doesn't, doesn't match my, my talk. And Paul says, hey, look, Christian, don't let that be your reputation. Don't let that be your reputation. Fight for the gospel with your own heart. Bind your faith in your conscience. Keep believing great gospel truths and keep believing and keep living in a way that is consistent with those truths. And he goes on to say that some, some have rejected this and they've made a shipwreck of their faith because of it. 
This brings us to point number three. We need to fight for the purity of the church. Fight for the purity of the church. Read the rest of verse 19 and then uh, end our text in verse 20 with me. Paul says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, unfortunate name, and Alexander, uh, one of those names is not like the other, uh, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's kind of hard words, right? Look, this is what happens when Christians drift from their faith or, or their practice of their faith. And Paul gives here two tragic examples by naming a couple dudes, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, there's a story uh, that I found recently that went, went viral in the, in the 90s. Um, it involves the transcript of a radio conversation uh, between a, a U.S. naval ship, the USS Lincoln, and the, the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in like the mid-90s. I'm just going to read this transcript because um, I, think, I think the story fits well. So the Americans, they get, they get on the radio and they say to the Canadian authorities, they say, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. And the Canadians go, uh, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And another American gets on the radio and he says, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Things are getting spicy, right? So the Canadians get on and they say, no, I say again, you divert your course. And an American captain, he gets back on and he says, hey, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the whole United States Atlantic fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, a number of support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one degree, one five degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. To which the Canadians go on and reply, Captain, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> See, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they did not steer from the lighthouse. They were teachers in the church who received numerous instructions from Timothy up to this point, pleading with them to stay the course to love the gospel, to teach it faithfully, to live it out for the glory of God and for the good of others. But they refused to steer away and shipwrecked their faith in the process. Now, some, some scholars and commentators will say that these two men were not just teachers in the church, but they were actually pastor elders. I think that this is a great reminder for those of us who are either pastors uh, or aspire to be pastors that no one is beyond the temptation to wander from the gospel. It's a, it's a good reminder for all of us. Nobody from the lead pastor to group leaders to, to down to covenant church members, no one is exempt, exempt from this warning. That's why Paul tells Timothy, you got to fight for the gospel. Fight for it. And because they've shipwrecked their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, I've handed them over to Satan. Now, what does he mean? In chapter 4 uh, of 1 Timothy, he calls their teaching the teaching of demons. And so Paul's saying here, he says, look, if they want to teach Satan's doctrine, they can hang out with him. They can just go chill with him. He's saying to Timothy, look, you've got to be a pastor. 
This is part of what it means to be a pastor. A pastor is not just someone who cares for people, but he confronts false teaching. He doesn't just preach the word. He protects his flock from wolves. He guards against false teaching that can destroy human souls. See, it's all about the salvation of souls. That's why he speaks with such urgency. That's why he uses this this military jargon of, of I charge you and I entrust you. So he tells Timothy, make sure you deal with this. Souls are on the line. This can happen in a number of ways in our churches today. Um, Some people, by the way, this happens, this can happen a lot uh, with with a, with a, a small young church plant like ours. Because people say like, hey, not a lot of people. That means not a lot of leaders. And so therefore, probably a lot of opportunity. And so there's some people who assume that they deserve a platform, right? Because here's who I am. Here's stuff that I've done. But their character hasn't even been tested over seasons. Well, there are some people who are just overzealous to teach. They're like, hey, I've got something to say. And I've got some people here to listen, right? Help me teach. Paul's telling Timothy, he's saying, hey, you got to be careful because if you're not careful, wolves can creep in here. Wolves can creep in. It reminded me, I saw this like funny um, ad. I realized it was a joke later on. Uh, I was a little slow. But uh, in our city's Facebook page, uh, somebody um, posted this this, uh, image of uh, like a, a wild dog. Uh, in, in a bathtub and says like, hey, like just found this stray dog on the street. Like I tried to grab him, you know, and he like, he's, he, he's like clawed at me and, you know, I just gave him a bath. He smells good now, but he seems really hungry and malnourished and stuff. And like, you're looking at this picture and you're like, dude, that's a coyote. Like apparently like the whole thing's like a meme. It's like a joke, right? Um, but like, it made me think about that. Cause it's like, look, when you see a wolf uh, creep into the church, what are you going to do? You don't, you don't pet the puppy right? You don't take it into your house. You don't give it a bath. No, you got to get it out. You get it out. You say, flee, get out of here. Paul says, hey, you got to do that to Hymenaeus and Alexander types. He says, expel them from the church. Why do we expel them from the church? Is it because Paul hates people? No, he loves people. People get hurt by false teaching. It's because he loves people that these wolves got to go. We want to protect God's people. And by removing these men, notice Paul's hope is not their destruction. His hope is actually by expelling them from the church, that they'll be restored, that they'll come back. How do we know that? It's because it's hinted at the end of, 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 of the last verse. He says, do this so that they may learn, learn not to blaspheme. The hope is that they would repent and come to the truth, that they would learn what's good for them. It is for their good and for the good of the church that they repent and come back to the true gospel. And look, I know that at first, when you read it quickly, it's jarring, right? It kind of feels like a downer to go from, from Paul last week to gushing over the gospel to, hey, kick these guys out. But do you see how the two go together? Man, if you love the gospel, you're going to protect it. You're going to defend it. If you really love the gospel, if it's at the heart of who you are, then protect it. All Paul is charging Timothy to do is just what Jesus said he would do for his church. In John 10, verse 11 through 15, Jesus said, I 
and the good shepherd. Shepherd is another word for pastor. That's why we call pastors under shepherds. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays, his, lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees because the hired hand's not really invested in the flock. And the wolf will come in and snatch them and scatter them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, but I, Jesus says, am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. You see, Jesus, King Jesus, Shepherd Jesus, he's a good shepherd, a good pastor who lays down his life for us. Good pastors, and not just good pastors, but faithful Christians like you are willing to do that. They're willing to lay down their lives, even if it means they're going to be made fun of, even if it means they're going to get hated on or misunderstood, because they love the sheep. They know that Jesus and his sheep are worth it. See, there's false teaching and there's true teaching. And in any given moment, you're believing one of them. The truth is found in God's word. The truth is in Jesus. His gospel is the greatest news there is. It's worth proclaiming. It's worth defending. And we defend it not with swords and shields or guns and fists. We defend it by holding fast to the faith that's delivered down through the centuries. So remember your charge and calling. Engage your faith and conscience. Fight for the purity of the church. If you're not a believer or a Christian, or you're sort of wavering in your faith in this season, the invitation is for you to come, come to the Good Shepherd today. He knows his own, and his own know him. And he will not lose a single one. If you're a believer, a worshiping Christian today, my question to you is, are you praising him? Are you studying him? Are you loving him? Are you worshiping him? Come to Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.